Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, yes, Father, we'd rather have Jesus than anything that this magnificent life you've given us allows us to experience. And Father, I know that I need to be reminded of that sometime. And thank you. Thank you for that gift in that beautiful hymn to remind us and to call to us that part of us that knows but sometimes gets buried the part of us that knows that, yes, Jesus over all. Father, I'd ask that you would give me the words to speak this morning and give all of us the hearts and the ears to hear and the feet and the hands to do with what it means for those who would have Jesus more than anything. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, good morning again. How are you? Yeah, are you TiVoing the Broncos game? Is it an early game today? Oh, it's a late game. Oh, well, so you don't have to. You know, I didn't share this with the morning service, but I I thought I'd share it with you. Um, I dreamt what the final score was. I mean, no kidding. I woke up and like when the last thing, you know, I can't remember anything that you dream. I dreamt what the final score was. I'm not kidding you. The final score, it was 26 to 7. I'm, I'm not sure which team won. <laughs> because the picture that I had of the score, the 7 was on top and the 26 was on the bottom. And usually they put the home team on the bottom, right? But then at the same time, I had the sense that the Colts won. So I don't know. Now, if it turns out to be 26 to 7... Wouldn't that be something? So I'm on record with 26 to 7, although if I couldn't tell you what team, I don't know that you could ever cash that in. So, I, <laughs> so I'm going to watch today, and if it starts looking like 26 to 7, well, wouldn't that be interesting? But anyway, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke 15, Luke chapter 15, and then if you're up to it, go ahead and also put a finger in your Bibles at Matthew 18. Luke 15 and Matthew 18. And while you're solving that little puzzle this morning, recall with me, if you will, that we're looking at some parables of Jesus that we're calling with the series title Beyond the Shadow, because parables are like shadows, a lot like shadows. Shadows of the spiritual reality standing behind the stories. That spiritual reality with God's light behind it and in it casting shadows in the form of a parable across the real physical realm. And like shadows, parables tell us something about spiritual reality, about God and the kingdom of heaven. They tell us something of truth, maybe even a lot. But they don't tell us everything about what's casting the shadow. We need to be reminded not to overanalyze the shadow, not to force the parable into teaching something it's not intending to teach or emphasize. And that task, my friends, discerning what a parable is intending to teach with what it's not intending to teach but merely has along for the ride requires a very careful look at context, various contexts, the parable's context in first century Israel where the image and stories come from. The parable's context in the Gospels, where the writer places them, and we find them written down. And of course, the parables in the context of Scripture as a whole, and also in the context of our life experience as we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit as we live our lives. Those contexts help us 
discerning what a parable is intending to teach. I've got a question to begin with this morning, and you can raise your hands. How many of you have ever lost something that you're desperate to find? Okay, now, if you don't raise your hand, see me after the service, because you've got something I want. <laughs> right? I mean, you've all lost something that you're desperate to find before, haven't you? And doesn't it just drive you crazy? Right? You misplace your car keys. You can't find the checkbook, the TV remote, and cordless phones. I'm convinced to grow legs and move on their own when we're not in the room. Dryers are notorious for eating laundry socks, right? And they're very um, particular because they only eat one sock of each pair. Did you notice? <laughs> you can't find your passport. What on earth did you do with that book or pen or earring or envelope or cell phone or your purse or wallet or that thingamajig that fits into the doohickey? <laughs> yes, we use, we use deep theological terms here. So you fill in the blank. Have you ever lost something that you're just beside yourself to find? And so what do you do when that happens, right? Well, if you're like me and many, I think you launch an all-out search, right? You look everywhere. You retrace your steps, and that gets harder the older you get because you can't remember where you were. <laughs> and you turn the couches inside out. You go through every drawer, every box, even a box, you know, it's a box that you haven't been in for 10 years. But when you're looking for something, you look at the, I'll bet it's in there. You know, and you, right? Am I wrong? Every drawer, every box, you're reaching under car seats, pulling out all the gunk, right? When it, something, when it's something that we just have to find, what lengths won't we go to to find it? And that feeling that you have in the pit of your stomach, right? And you've realized you've lost something that you're going to need badly and you can't find it. Can you summon up that feeling again this morning? Remember what that's like? Some of you are feeling it this morning because you've lost something and you're going to try to find it when you get home, right? It's a, it's a feeling that almost feels like, like, like panic if it's something you really need. You try to hold off being frustrated or even depressed because you can't help imagining, even as you're looking for it, oh, what if I never find it? No, keep looking, I'll find it. And the longer it takes, the more that, that ache in the pit of your stomach grows. Oh no, it's lost. You know that feeling? And then, oh, and then, after such diligent, time-consuming, frustrating, desperate searching, you find it. You lay your hands on the blessed thing, right? And you find it. And the joy that just floods your entire being, right? The joy of discovery. And you hold... You hold those missing car keys you never thought you'd see again in your life above your head, right? I got them! I got them! Oh, I got them! Oh, I got them! You just kind of, you, you I got them all. Right? After you've been looking for something that's lost, and you have to share it with someone, right? Look! Look! You're ready to take an advertisement in the Denver Post. I have found my keys! Ha ha ha! I found them, and it feels so good, so satisfying, so fulfilling, so ah, when something lost is found. Can you summon up that feeling too this morning? Remember what that's like when you finally find something, when you finally find something that's important to you and that's lost, that you're desperate to find? Ah, oh, what a feeling, right? You may even sing a song or do a little dance, even if you're Christian. Because, ha, you found it. 
Isn't that a great feeling? Almost worth losing something to experience the joy of finding it. Almost. Almost. Jesus draws on both of those powerful feelings in the twin parables we're looking at this morning. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. He uses those well-known powerful feelings that that desperate borderline despair in the pit of your stomach feeling over something lost and that irrepressible joy when something lost is found. Jesus draws on both of those feelings to illustrate something very, very important for us to know about God and what it means to those who want to have Jesus more than anything. Let's read the parables this morning. Your fingers are at Luke 15 and Matthew 18. We'll read in Luke first, then Matthew, and then Luke again. So I'm beginning reading in Luke 15, verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, Jesus says. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And that took some doing. Scholars tell us that a sheep... In that day, 70 to 90 pounds. Let me just whisk that thing up. Labors to put that 70-pound sheep on his shoulders. When he finds it, he joyfully (laughs) puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Matthew's version of the parable goes this way. Matthew 18, verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 12. Matthew 18, 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And then Luke adds the parable of the lost coin, Luke 15, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. One of those silver coins about a day's wages, historians tell us. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The twin pillars of these twin parables are diligent search and abundant joy. Diligent search for the lost and abundant joy when they're found, when they're restored to their relationship, their standing with God. God is all about a diligent at all cost search and God is all about abundant, irrepressible joy when the lost are found. And so those who follow God, those who want to have Jesus more than anything must also be about diligent searching for the lost and abundant joy when they are found. Because God is. And my question is, are we? Do we 
search diligently and rejoice abundantly over the lost. Two key first century contexts of Luke and Matthew help emphasize the main points in these parables of of diligent search and abundant joy. And both contexts involve hotly debated topics in Jesus' day. And interestingly enough, topics we wrestle with today as well. The first topic hotly debated in Jesus' day was whether or not to associate with sinners. Hang out with sinners. Have sinners as your friends. Have them over for dinner, which in first century was as deep an intimate of fellowship as you could have with a non-family member. In fact, made them family members when you'd have them over for dinner. You'd give your life for them. Whether or not to associate with sinners was the debate. On one side of the debate were those who said, Ay, the righteous shouldn't associate with sinners because it leads to temptation. And God says to flee from all evil. Flee from temptation. And man, if we're associating with sinners, it's going to lead us to temptation. I know how weak we are, so help us, God. And if we associate with sinners, we're going to be tempted to engage in their sin. So we we should stay away. Stay away from sinners, lest you be tempted to sin. On the other side were those who said, absolutely associate with sinners, because how else are they going to know God? That's what our job here is as God's people. Associate with sinners because it's through our friendships with them, our relationship with them that God leads people back to Him. And you had teachers in Jesus' day and beyond on both sides of this debate. In Luke, Jesus tells the parables in response to some Pharisees muttering about Jesus welcoming and eating with sinners. In Matthew, Jesus tells the parable in response to His own disciples asking Him, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in answer to that, in part, Jesus calls a little boy to come on over and stand there, the text says, among them. And I picture that little boy standing there, eyes this big, with those disciples there, maybe Jesus resting his hands on his young shoulders and telling the parable of the lost sheep. And then when he gets to that emphatic last line, I tell you there's more rejoicing in heaven when one of these little ones comes to know God than with the 99 who are righteous and did not wander off. Just look. Look at the illustrations that Jesus uses in these parables and in many. He uses a shepherd, a woman, and a little boy as the examples to follow. Shepherds who were considered a part of the sinners and tax collectors, despised because so many of them were considered thieves for allowing their sheep to wander onto someone else's land. Fascinating, isn't it, that God chooses that picture, redeems that word, uses the word shepherd as a key symbol to identify himself, and Jesus does too. Good shepherds, to be sure, But they pick a despised word and redeem it and even use it as a picture of who he is, God does, and Jesus does. And while women and children weren't considered sinners or thieves, they were nevertheless marginalized, belittled, overlooked, at least as compared to first century men. And Jesus' use of shepherds and women and children and things like Samaritans in another famous parable as heroes exemplary in his parables. Just the fact that he makes them 
good and worthy and important. Well, it just brings home in a delightful way of how much God values and cares for even those the world calls less deserving. So one context of Jesus' parables this morning is the debate over association with sinners, and Jesus picks his side. Hmm, some of you don't think the righteous should associate with sinners. Well, let me tell you story after story after story that emphasizes how you not only should, but must. Second, another hotly debated topic in Jesus' day was was whether the study of Torah or good deeds took precedent in the lives of the righteous. On the one side were those who said action should take precedence over learning. On the other side, learning must precede doing. And back and forth they argued, both recognizing that both were important, but they wanted to know which one's most important. That's just sort of, they would debate that. What do we emphasize? What do we prioritize? Study your action. They go back and forth. And Jesus tells these parables showing intense, focused effort being made to seek what's lost. The searching of the shepherd and the woman are a main point in the parable, diligent searching for what's lost. When we study Jesus' teaching, not just in these parables, but all of his teaching, really, one essence of Jesus' teaching is to not only hear, but do. Don't just study. Study. Oh, study. Remember, his audience and Jesus himself knew Torah and probably the Bible, at least the leaders, by heart. They knew the text. But his point for that audience in particular was don't just study, act on your study. We study to act. We know to do. There's no learning for the sake of learning. We learn in order to act, and that action... To get back to the first hotly debated topic where Jesus weds the two, that action is to benefit the marginalized and in order to restore the lost to God. Don't just hear, don't just study. Do that, but don't just do that. No doubt James' famous faith without works is dead was inspired by his brother's emphasis on doing And to the muttering experts, Jesus tells these parables in order to defend and hold up as exemplary Jesus' own deliberate association with and eating with known sinners. Or in the case of Matthew, to lift up even a little child as illustrating the one who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus enters the debate on associating with sinners and gives his adamant thumbs up He enters the debate on study and action and reminds his study-filled listeners that they also need to do. And along the way, given the echo, I'm sure, have little doubt of Ezekiel 34 in the minds and hearts of his audience. Jesus may indeed have a little fun, and maybe not so much fun, but at least indeed a poke at the failure of Israel's leaders, of her shepherds, to associate with sinners and to do with their study for the benefit of the lost and the marginalized. Ezekiel 34 is one of several places in the Old Testament where the image of God as shepherd is deeply rooted. Probably starts with David, or before him Moses, or before him Abram. But the prophets pick up on that image of the good shepherd for God, and in Ezekiel, Our shepherd God is angry in chapter 34 with the leaders of his people 
Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves, God says. You do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. And then God says, because the leaders of Israel haven't been good shepherds, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. And Oh my, does Jesus ever enter the debate over associating with sinners and action in helping the marginalized in the telling of the parable of the lost sheep. Hey, all the learning in the world doesn't do any good if you don't act on it and seek the lost. You need to mix it up with the world in order for you as salt to be effective. It's a later parable, but you get the idea. My people, hear me and do as I do with the sinners and the marginalized. Help me. And we should be desperate to help God find the lost. Desperate. Because it's not just sheep or coins that are lost. It's people. And people are God's children. All made in His image, every one of them. All cherished and loved by the one who made them as we love our own children. And so many are missing. They're lost. And so those who follow God, those who would have Jesus more than anything, must also be about diligently searching for the lost and abundant joy when they are found so they know how much they are cherished and loved because they see the joy on the faces of their new community. Because God does this. And we're his witness. But are we? I asked you whether you could summon up the feeling of losing something that you're desperate to find. And I gave examples of things like car keys and television remotes. And I think we can summon up that rotten feeling over something lost. But now imagine, what if it was your little boy or your little girl who was missing. Can you imagine that feeling? Same, but, but, but way deeper. And I don't know, unless it's happened to you, maybe even beyond our ability to imagine what losing a child is like, that feeling, the mounting panic as you try to control your desperation, as you look for your child because they're missing. Oh, what a horrible feeling that must be. Even, even if they wander off for a few moments or in the grocery store or the park, right? Parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, ever have that fleeting, that fleeting second even of, 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 of terror when suddenly you're just not sure where your little one went? It's not standing in the grocery aisle anymore. Where, did he, where is he in the park? She was just there. And then that, that huge sigh of relief, a form of joy, <laughs> when she steps out from behind the tree where you couldn't see her, or, or he comes running back with his favorite uh, macaroni and cheese that he went to find. A few years ago, in, in the movie Flight Plan, Jodie Foster's daughter, Julia, 
goes missing on an airplane in flight. And the film does, does a great job of capturing that slowly building desperate feeling when a mom can't find her daughter. And I think it's worth watching a clip this morning to help us feel and empathize with what that's like. Let's watch. the other eye. I'm, I'm just looking for my daughter. Well, she can't have gone too far. I'll go around. Your juice? Thank you. reached up there by herself. She's not tall enough. Somebody has her. That's quite an assumption, Miss Pratt. I need to talk to the captain. You will go back. Hey, hey. Imagine going through that. And my friends, that's God. Every moment of every day. Do we appreciate the magnitude of his care and concern and love and heartache and desperation over his lost children? Do we? Or are we like the, the people on the plane, indifferent, amused even, wrapped up in whatever it is we're doing? And, and then when God pushes for, uh, uh, for us to help him do we respond like the people in the plane when Foster is urging them to help her, even for some empathy or attention? And, 
and not only respond with indifference, but, but, but like in the film, now outright opposition because, hey, hey, wait a minute. Now you're getting a little crazy here. You're upsetting the apple cart or, or the drink cart, I guess. Now you're messing with my life and my comfort with your radical, frantic search for your lost children. Get away from me and just have a seat, would you? Interestingly enough, when Jesus came himself, God in the flesh, for the search, they knocked him down too, didn't they? Didn't we? Do you think we ever make God feel that way with our attitudes and reaction to his search for his lost children? I imagine the indifference surrounding God, even from his own people, must feel a lot like the indifference and even the opposition that Foster felt while looking for her child and asking for help. Our two parables this morning are something called interrogative parables, meaning they start with a question capable of only one answer, a rhetorical question, we would say. And whatever the exact form of the question, the question asks, who wouldn't do this? Who wouldn't? Meaning, of course, everyone would. Who wouldn't go and look for a lost sheep? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't seek diligently for a lost day's wages? Who wouldn't? And then when the parable sets us up with, yeah, who wouldn't? I would too. The parable springs its twist and brings the question home right between our eyes or right piercing our soul. And if you'd go all out to look for a lost sheep or a lost coin, then how much more shouldn't you seek out God's lost children? And if you'd rejoice over finding a sheep or a coin, then how much more shouldn't you rejoice when God's lost children are found? And Jesus' message that day, for some listening at least, is how can you possibly sit there and study and go about your life refusing even to associate with God's lost kids parading before you each and every day? How can you? The twin pillars of these twin parables are diligent seeking and abundant joy. Diligent search for the lost and abundant joy when they're found. When they're restored to the relationship with God, God is all about diligent at all costs searching and God is all about abundant irrepressible joy when the lost are found. And so those who follow God and who would rather have Jesus than anything must also be about diligent searching for the lost and abundant joy when they are found because God is. But are we? There God stands asking us pleading with us every day, have you seen my child? Have you seen my children? They're lost. Oh, will you help me find them? Please, please help me. Do we feel anywhere near the ache in our heart for the loss that God feels in His? And if we don't, why not? Well, self-interest and pride, those usual suspects are in the police lineup again, as they always are when it comes to the obstacle keeping us from being more like Jesus. Are we just too busy with our own stuff to be bothered? Even when God's kids are missing? Even when it's our own spiritual brothers and sisters lost? 
too busy studying the Word and deepening our own experience with God to worry about someone who doesn't even know Him yet? There's another reason, I think, also linked to pride. Again, every sin is really linked to pride. But it's a pride of a different color. Let me try and illustrate. When my wife Jill was very young, maybe six years old, she and her friend Pam came up with a plan. And it was to call someone in church. No, that was not the plan. (laughs) One of these days, I'll come down and answer it and say, hello, no, she's busy, or he's busy. And so they went to the bottom of the stairs, these two six-year-old girls, where Jill's mom had some poinsettias. Poinsettias? Poinsettias. Don't know. And Jill and Pam systematically picked off all the red leaves of these beautiful flowers, plants, I don't know, and scattered them on the floor around the plants. And then it was time for step two of the plan. They went and got Jill's little brother, David. He was two. So you know where this is going in your sinful human nature. Dragged this little toehead boy over to where the defrocked plants were, set him down there on the floor amidst the scattered red leaves, told him, stay right there. (laughs) And the final step of the Jill and Pam plan was to yell, Mom! Oh no, come see what David did to the poinsettias! I can tell this story because Jill is up in the mountains this morning with a friend. (laughs) So don't tell her. We'll see if she really listens to the sermon online. (laughs) Hey, are you kidding? I'm a guy, but I'm not totally stupid. I asked her last night if I could tell this story. (laughs) And mom came downstairs, took in the sight of Jill and Pam pointing aghast at David, who was sitting there blissful in his innocence, smiling up at his mommy, hands clasped together, just basking in the presence of his mom. Sitting there amidst the pretty scattered red leaves. And mom scooped him up, and this bewildered little boy got a spanking while his sister and her friend giggled with their little hands over their mouths. I played tennis in high school, and our coach, Mr. Pothoven, had one glass size, so we called him Popeye. We were sensitive young men. Was a term of endearment. Really was. Mr. Pothoven really wasn't a tennis guy, but, but, you know, he liked to coach, and his favorite tennis advice to us, I can still hear it, was this. Hey, when the guy comes up to the net, give him a fuzz sandwich. It's a Christian school that I went to. <laughs> anyway, whenever we traveled to matches, we'd take the school van, and because he had only one eye, Mr. Pothoven, it was a terrible challenge for him backing up the van because he had no depth perception. He'd back up so slow, it's like we weren't moving or going forward. So it's like, <sighs> and he'd sit there trying to compensate for his one eye, you know, on all three mirrors, you know, doing the, try to get the binocular vision thing going. Now, as seniors, we sat in the back row of the van, senior territory. And being the compassionate and sensitive team leaders we were, 
while Mr. Potoven was backing up the van, we'd suddenly bang the side of the van loud, and he'd slam on the brakes because he thought he hit something. And he'd be furious, which would make it funnier, you know, go figure. But he couldn't tell what was going on or who was doing it, because, you know. Well, we took it a step further. As seniors, captains of the team, we felt we had a duty, finally, to tell Mr. Potoven what was going on. So we told him. And we told him this fresh, freshman kid was banging the side of the van every time he backed up. <laughs> and it gets better. The freshman kid happened to be his own son, Chuck. And Mr. Pothoven bought it. I remember standing there feeling like, I know, what the, I know what the term in the Bible means for heaping hot coals on the head of someone who sinned, because I felt it as that man sat there and thanked us for coming to him and telling us what was going on. So, next time in the van, Mr. P is backing up. One of us seniors in the back. Bang! Breaks, slam on. Mr. Pothoven turns around furious and he yells, Chuck! I have had enough of your disrespect. Do you ever want to be on this team? Get out! And Chuck is just sitting there speechless. And my friends and I are in the back just dying. We're laughing so hard. What's the point? Other than your pastor and his wife struggle with sin too. I wonder if one reason, at least, we don't always share the same depth and ache in our heart for the loss that God feels in his is maybe we kind of want them to get in trouble with God for being the disgusting sinners that they are. Especially the ones who have hurt us. In our depraved human nature, you know, it makes us feel better somehow when someone else gets it. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. Get him. Desperate to reach those who are living lives of sin? What, are you kidding me? That's their choice. They've made their bed and now they can sleep in it. It's not like they can't control it or something. Why would I be desperate to help them? They'll get what they deserve. And that can become especially bitter when it's someone who's hurt us or someone whose sin is particularly disgusting to us. And God steps in at that point, and Jesus through these parables, and he says, Oh, have you seen my child? Have you seen my children? They're lost. Will you help me find them? Please, please help me. Because that's how God feels about them. Everyone even the disgusting ones to us, especially the disgusting ones, because they're the most lost. That's how God feels about them, and we're called to be God's witness to them. So how are we doing? Do lost, disobedient to God, and insignificant people have any sense from us that God really cares about them and is seeking them? Do they have any sense that we do too? In flight plan... Jodie Foster is relentless in her search for her daughter, and eventually her diligent search pays off. Let's watch.
Kristus. That's God. The joy in that scene at discovering that little girl is a quiet joy, but it's profound. And she's not about to let that little girl go out of her arms, is she? Like the shepherd carrying the lost sheep. Finally sets her down when she gets home, in this case, the back of the minivan. And the people around the mom hardly know what to do, how to react. They're simply in awe of the diligent search and joy of this mom finding her child. And all they can say is, like the pilot did, at least he stepped forward and said said something, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I didn't join in your search, so sorry for my indifference. And in the movie, even his opposition, he tries to shoot her at one point because he thinks she's crazy. Sorry I didn't share in your heart for your lost little girl. Boy, I tell you what, I don't want to have, and I don't wish on anyone here to have that experience of feeling like I need to apologize to God one day for not joining in his heart for his lost kids especially the marginalized, the suffering, the hurting, and the disgusting sinners who, by the way, at the cross of Jesus and before the throne of God are no different than me.
there stands our great big Father, Almighty God, beseeching arms outstretched every day, asking us, pleading with us, Have you seen my child? She's lost. He can't find me. She's given up. He's paralyzed with fear. They're confused. They're lost. Will you please help me find them? Please, oh, please help me. I know they've made more choices. I know. I know your tendency toward pride and self-righteousness sometimes that inclines you to judge them. I know, but I need you to work with me as together we work on your heart to feel the desperate, urgent love I have for them, to find them. Why do you think you're still here? Why do you think I haven't raptured you away? I need your help, please. I had your pastor ask you to invite someone to church. Have you? I know that's awkward. I know that's hard. I know that's cheesy. But they're my kids. My kids! This Christmas season when your church invites people to come home that haven't been home, will you ask them to come, please? They're my kids. And I know a church is just the building. This isn't the magic place, but it's a place where I've given you all to congregate and experience and to know what love and fellowship and Christian community is. And I want my lost kids to experience me through that and through you, through all of your wonderful ministries that you're doing. Won't you ask them to come? Please. It's my kids. They're lost. Have you seen my children? Won't you help me find them? And when they come home, won't you rejoice so they really feel cherished and loved? And that they belong. Really know that they do. Have you seen my child? Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us when we lose sight of your diligent search, your aching, breaking heart over your kids that are lost. Please work in us that transformation of heart to be more like your son Jesus who when he came, he came with a single focus to reach and to find your children, including us here. Please, Father, please, enable us, equip us, do whatever it takes to have us help you search diligently for your lost kids. And help us, Father, to rejoice sincerely and deeply when any one of them even comes home. We love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction? God was at work last week and this week. I couldn't.
I had an unusual hard time last night and this morning settling on a parting benediction, and so I picked something, but I thought, ah, it's not really fitting, and then uh, Anne, um, one of our seniors here at church, um, came up to me and handed me a hymn. Anne was the only one last week because she begged me to, to, tell me, to tell her what the parables were we were talking about this week, the only one, so I told her. And then she's the one this morning who handed me a copy of this old hymn, The Ninety and the Nine. And I found the benediction for this morning. It's its last verse or chorus. I'm not sure which. And all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry of the gate of heaven. Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back His own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back His own. And oh, my brothers and sisters, may it be said of us that we help with all we can in diligently searching and rejoicing to help God bring back His own. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.